now 27 years ago, uh, is, um, well, when I bought it, I was quite impressed with it. Uh, it's got four prongs and it holds the diamond and through the years I've wondered if the prongs were bigger than the diamond, but uh, notice that once in a while it needs to be uh, cleaned. It collects uh, uh, different uh, grime and things like that and it requires a cleaning. Uh, there are some stories in the Bible that require that as well. There are foreign bodies that attach themselves to that. That's happened with the Christmas story. Much of what people believe about the Christmas story actually comes from about the uh, second century from an apocryphal book entitled The Pro-Evangelium of James. It's a, a, a work that was not worthy to find itself in the New Testament, but the typical story is, is that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem and this very rude hotel owner did not let them in the inn and so they stayed in a stable and Jesus was born in a stable. Well, there are some things that are true about that, but some things that are uh, probably not quite factual. And with that, I want to see and make sure that you, were, uh, to re you received a handout tonight. If you can set your eyes on one of those. If you don't, lift your hand. Jonathan, will make sure that you got one. Uh, I want to uh, begin in uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 4 and uh, clarify three things about the Christmas story that may help. Again, if you need a handout, if you'd lift your hand, Jonathan will be glad to help you with uh, one of those. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out on the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. There are three things I want to clarify for us about the Christmas story. First, it deals with the manger. Was the manger where Jesus laid a feeding trough in a stable or in a barn? Well, if Jesus uh, happened to be delivered in the home of a wealthy pe person, which there were very, very few wealthy persons in Israel, there was no middle class to speak of. The vast majority of people were peasants. And beyond royalty uh, from Rome and a few others, especially among the Sadducees, there really weren't that many wealthy people. But if Jesus had been delivered and born uh, to a wealthy, uh, in, in a wealthy home, that, that is a possibility. Uh, in Bethlehem, however, that was not very likely. Uh, Bethlehem... Uh, was not a wealthy place. In fact, it was dry and dusty. Now, we appreciate it today, but it was not appreciated in uh, the first century when Jesus was born. I imagine few folks even remember that it happened to be the city of uh, David. It was uh, probably an awful lot like Santa Claus, Georgia. Have you ever been through Santa Claus, Georgia? Well, Santa Claus, Georgia named itself Santa Claus, Georgia in hopes that it would attract tourists. And it didn't. It didn't, by day, and it's not going to. 
Vidalia and Lyons nearby are much more impressive, if, if I can use that word for Vidalia and uh, Lyons. Uh, the people down there are great, by the way. Uh, I've got friends there, but uh, the cities are not uh, a destination to which uh, you would travel and have a good time. Um, uh, the people are lovely, though. But uh, Santa Claus, Georgia, uh, when I was driving through it frequently uh, 10 years ago or so, uh, maybe longer, um, was just a very small settlement without a red light. I'm not even sure it had a gas station, and nearly all the buildings were dilapidated. In other words, uh, socially, culturally, and financially, Santa Claus, Georgia was an awful lot like the equivalent of Bethlehem in the first century. Not very impressive. So the home into which Jesus was born there was um, most likely a peasant home. And these peasant homes uh, were made up of two and sometimes three uh, rooms. The animals happened to stay in the home at night in the first room, which was near the door and was on a lower level. Uh, And then you would walk up a few steps and there would be the second room, which had a sloped floor so that it was easy to clean. Now, at the end of that sloped floor, floor, before you got into the next room, in which there was no division, were a couple of holes that were dug out of the ground, and that's usually where you put the feed and fodder for, or the feed for uh, the livestock that were there. Now, you know why they put livestock in the home? Well, they didn't own property. They didn't have pastures. Uh, They didn't uh, have uh, barbed wire fencing. They didn't have anything like that. And by putting them in the home, they prevented thievery and stealing. And the animals would be there and they would warm the place up as well. There are many places throughout the world that still continue to do this. And whatever the animals leave there overnight, they scoop up and put in the garden. I want to be delicate, but that's, that's what they do. It's a very important and very common thing. And so uh, that's what they do. And, and when they're on that lower first level near the door, they will turn and eat out of those dugout holes. Well, those holes are called mangers. And uh, that's generally what they are. So when Jesus was born, he was most likely born in this home of strangers. And that's what the Jews did. You didn't generally go to a hotel. There weren't many commercial hotels anywhere to be found, especially in um, Bogart, I mean uh, Bethlehem. Uh, Instead, Jews were such that you would allow strangers to stay in your home. And you would rest and dwell there, and they practice hospitality for strangers there. You find that with the angels visiting Lot. Lot was very insistent that they stay with him. And that's been something that's been with the Jews, uh, at least the ancient Jews, for uh, centuries. And so the, um, uh, uh, Mary and Joseph arrive there. They find this home of strangers, and they end up staying with them. And Jesus, while there, is born, and they lay him in this dugout little hole uh, in the ground, uh, covering him up, and that's where he happens to be uh, laid. Well, the second, I, the second uh, question, and by the way, your uh, handout will include something of a picture from that. Ken- Kenneth Bailey grew up in the Middle East, uh, just recently passed away, but was a tremendous New Testament scholar. He's written a book entitled Jesus uh, Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and uh, many of the homes, uh, frankly, in some of the small rural places are still very much like this in Israel, and that's certainly the case. Ancient Israel, New Testament archaeologists have found it to be so. But the second thing happens uh, to, the second item happens to deal with the end. It says here at the end of verse 2, a very traditional English interpretation, that there was no room for them in the end. And the notion is, is that they came upon a commercial hotel, and the um, 
uh, hotel manager was uh, mean and nasty, and he was uh, very obstuperous and did not allow them to stay in this particular hotel for whatever reason. Um, th that's not likely. That's not likely. However, there is a word in the New Testament for a commercial hotel. You find that in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, in the parable of the... Not Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan uh, picks up this poor, uh, bedraggled, unfortunate uh, uh, Jewish man who has been beaten and takes him to a commercial hotel and pays for his room and says, I'm going to come back through. See, if he has any other charges to his bill, I will cover them. The word that is used in the Greek New Testament for that kind of inn is... Uh, Pandakian. That's a Pandakian. And that's used again in Luke chapter 10. The word here used in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, same author, is not Pandakian. It happens to be the word Cataluma. It's entirely different. And a Cataluma is not a Pandakian. Now look at your name word say. A Cataluma is not a Pandakian. All right. In other words, a home is not a hotel. And specifically, a Cataluma happened to be, in some of the homes, a third room or section of the home that was actually the guest room. And so when Mary and Joseph came, they found a peasant home, most likely with strangers, where they could stay, and they had uh, a um, Cataluma. They had a guest room where uh, guests would stay. The problem is is that it was already filled up. You see, the pagan uh, emperor, Caesar Augustus, had declared a census, and the way they arranged the census is that you went back to your hometown, and you registered there, they took a census, and they taxed you on that basis. And in the process, fulfilled the prophecy of Micah 5.2. Even pagan rulers can be an instrument of God, and let us hope so. Let us hope so. We hope that for the whole world, in fact. Um, but that is uh, really uh, what Jesus ends up using in Luke chapter 22, verses 10 through 12. He tells Peter and Andrew and John to go prepare the Passover in a Cataluma. And so when he institutes the Lord's Supper, they are in a Cataluma, the guest room of a particular home. Well, they arrive here in Bethlehem, and the only spot available happens to be in this home. And even the guest room is filled up. That, that would be true in Bethlehem. I mean, uh, it would fill up real quickly, quicker than hotel rooms in Athens during a uh, Bulldog football game. And uh, the only place available, the only spot available was near this manger between the guest and the family on one side and the barn animals on the other, or the livestock on uh, the other. And so uh, that uh, is most likely what you've got here in Luke chapter 2. Well, in fact, you do have a Cataluma. But the third uh, item that needs to be clarified some as well happened to be the shepherds. Now, how in the world this happened, we don't know. But the shepherd, uh, the image of a shepherd, uh, described God himself, and he promised to shepherd his people in uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 23. 
And then the shepherd psalm of uh, Psalms 23 was precious to the Jews, just like it is to us. And then Israel's greatest king came from the occupation of being a shepherd. Through the centuries, however, the status and the respect for shepherds declined and disintegrated precipitously. By the time Jesus arrived in the world, shepherds were not very well respected. In fact, their testimony was not admitted into the courts. They were not seen as very reliable people because they would keep watch over their flocks out in the field for weeks and months at the time. They didn't observe the Sabbath uh, because they were constantly with animals and would have to face death with their livestock. Uh, they were oftentimes considered unclean. And so there was really nothing about shepherd's life that was very appealing. Now you remember, of course, that when Joseph was in Egypt, his father and his brothers come dragging in the town. You know, they don't make it to the city very often. Well, they come to the capital city with Pharaoh. And Joseph, remember what he tells his father? Don't tell them that you're a shepherd. Because to the, shepherd, to the Egyptians, shepherds are an abomination. Well, they weren't quite that among the Jews, but they were not very respected. Well, nevertheless, what you have here in the text is something absolutely startling. The first century reader would be thoroughly shocked by what you find here, especially the Jewish reader, beginning in verse 8. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, that's not surprising, but the next verse is, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were greatly afraid. And then the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So they ran off to Bethlehem to see these things, if they were so, and they departed rejoicing, going hog wild over the news that they had heard and the sights they'd seen, and began to tell of the Savior of the world. What's remarkable here is that God found disrespected people who really had no reason to be disrespected at all and delivered the good news to them first, immediately after the birth of Jesus Christ. And then he said, the way you're going to know that you have found the right baby, because there may have been several babies born around that time, several infants in the village, but there will be something that you will find. There will be a sign when you find a baby. Now let me ask you something. What is the basic qualification for a sign? Let me ask you. As you're driving down the Atlanta Highway, and you see leaves in the trees or that have fallen uh, on the road, on the side of the road or in the road. Is that much of a sign? Not really. That's not unusual at all, is it? Is asphalt of the road a sign? Are businesses along the business district of Atlanta Highway a sign? No. How do you distinguish something that is a sign from something else? The basic qualification for something that is a sign is what? It sticks out. It's different than everything else. So a bumper sticker, right, um, uh, is a sign. A, a, a stop sign is, is a bit unusual. That's a sign. Stop lights, 
maybe too many of them, uh, not timed very well, but uh, uh, those are signs as well, okay? It has to stick out. Um, that's one of the reasons that um, many of us did not really like the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, Isaiah came to Ahaz, the King Ahaz, who was scared to death because uh, he was uh, facing uh, possible war uh, with another king, and he said, ask the Lord for a sign to give you some peace and comfort. He said, oh, I'm not going to do that. He got real hyper-spiritual and fake spirituality because he's very wicked. And he said, I won't test the Lord. Well, he'd done everything else to test God. And Isaiah said, well, the Lord himself will provide a sign. Behold, an anoma, an anoma shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. An anoma technically can be translated young woman. Uh, but most young Hebrew women then were virgins. That's what they were. And so the translators have rightly translated that word virgin. The Revised Standard Version insists that uh, the best translation is young woman. Well, my goodness, for a young woman of any, uh, for a young woman of any place to give birth to a child is not unusual enough to be a sign. A virgin birth is a sign, and Matthew picks up on that in Matthew 121, and he says, uh, he quotes from the Septuagint and uses the Greek word for virgin in that text. And so um, that, that's why the Revised Standard Version is a very unfortunate uh, translation, that and, and about 10 million other reasons. But um, uh, the English Standard Version folks, by the way, bought the Revised Standard Version and improved it. So uh, the English Standard Version is the... Um, uh, is a newer version of the Revised Standard Version. So in order for a sign to be a sign, it's got to stand out, it's got to be different. That's what you have here with this sign to the shepherds. You will find a babe, that's not unusual, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now that would be unusual for a king. This is the way peasants would wrap their children. But even that's not terribly unusual. But here's what it is, is unusual. In this town of Bethlehem, if there are multiple infants... You're looking for the one that is lying in a manger, the very feeding trough from which some of your own sheep will eat when they get back to the city or back to the village. That is what is unusual. In other words, Jesus begins his life off looking not like royalty in Jerusalem or Rome. He comes off looking as the kind of royalty of a shepherd. He ends up looking a lot like them to begin with. And so those three items, I think, deserve some kind of clarification. Now, the question I want to ask and answer in just a few moments is, well, so what? What does that mean to us? These are all very interesting, but we're, we're not just merely concerned with communicating information. Uh, what, what does this mean? Well, I think we see value in a couple of things here. One, we see value in the ordinary. We see value in the ordinary. That's what we find taking place here. There's an ordinary home, ordinary guest room, and uh, shepherds which were plentiful in that day. Much in the New Testament is very ordinary. And you don't really find it recorded. Jesus, for example, walks from Nazareth to the Jordan River. Have you ever gone to your Bible maps and measured just how long a journey that is in Mark chapter 1, verse 9? That is at least, depending on where John is on the Jordan River, that is at least a 40-mile walk. And I use that to argue that's why baptism by immersion is important because that's where Jesus was going. You don't walk 40 miles just for get out on a stroll one day. 
you know. You walk 40 miles because you're trying to accomplish something. And uh, Jesus walked that far to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. The book of Acts is 30 years of New Testament history. 30 years of New Testament history. And yet it's just a few pages long. Uh, Most historical works that cover 30 pages are much longer than that. What you don't find is elaborate descriptions of Paul's journeys from uh, Troas to Philippi. Uh, You don't find an awful lot about the uh, shipwreck journey uh, from uh, Malta to Rome, for example, or some of the islands in the Mediterranean over to Malta. You, You don't find an awful lot. In other words, Luke was selective in what he was communicating in order to make a spiritual and theological point in the text. The book of Acts is much like a sermon. But that, you have to understand, when you're reading the Bible, you are reading about a lot of material over a long period of time that is just very ordinary. Very ordinary. Uh, I've told you before, but you can get the, um, you get the impression that uh, all the biblical heroes are always performing miracles. And that's really not the case. They're really... 1,500 years of biblical history from Genesis to Revelation, recorded history, from the time Moses started writing until John finished the book of Revelation. From the time Moses started writing Genesis till John finished Revelation, you got about 1,500 years. But you've only got three eras of miracles that total about 300 years. There's the era of Moses and uh, Joshua. Then there's the era of Elijah and Elisha. Then there's the era of Jesus and the apostles. Total, at most, that's about 300 years. There are 1,200 years of biblical history where there aren't any miracles. And we don't have any miracles recorded by Adam. We don't have any miracles recorded uh, by, um, goodness, even Noah. Uh, Noah didn't perform any miracles. We don't have any miracles that David performed. We don't have any miracles that Solomon performed or Saul. Uh, And so it's not as if they're constantly performing miracles. If we forget that we're covering a lot of space and a lot of time when we're reading the Bible, what we will miss is that the vast majority of the Scripture is ordinary, and by making it ordinary, God is sanctifying the ordinary. God is making it special and dear to himself and to his people. Well, this came home to me, and it's come home to me a couple of times. I was having a conversation, um, my soul, maybe about 18 to 24 months ago in the hallway over in the main building. And there was a lady talking to me, um, trying to uh, give me an idea. It was a brilliant idea. But she was having a hard time forming her words. And she got a little frustrated. And about the time she did, frustrated with herself, about the time she did, somebody walked right past her And they heard this, and they just kept walking. They couldn't help but hear. And they thought the lady was fussing at me. And she wasn't. She wasn't. Um, uh, She uh, was just frustrated with herself. And that young lady who walked past was so impressed with my demeanor, listening, she thought I was setting a great example. You know, I wasn't. I was real sympathetic uh, because I've had that problem myself, trying to shape and form my words. But folks, that was an ordinary moment when someone was having an ordinary experience of ordinarily struggling to form ordinary thoughts to an ordinary pastor, and someone walked by and was impressed about how the exchange went. God has sanctified 
the ordinary. But there's a second thing here, and that is there's value not only in the ordinary, there's value in contrast. Jesus entered the world into Bethlehem. That's a big deal in the Bible. Because Jesus is preceded by someone else, a couple, that entered the world as well. But when they entered the world, they entered a perfect world without blemish, with mighty and fruitful rivers, in a lush garden, walking personally with God, they did not enter into a peasant home in an obscure city and were laid in a manger. Far from it. In fact, they didn't even come into the world as infants. Adam and Eve, when they came into the world, phenomenologically appeared to be adults. They had age on them. Didn't have belly buttons, but they had age. When they came into the world. And so a day old, they, are, they appear as adults. Um, so they have the advantage of that. When God came to earth, he didn't come into the world anything like that. He didn't come into the garden. He came to Bethlehem. He didn't come to a paradise. He came to an obscure village. And he was laid in a manger. Is there not, I mean, could there be a wilder contrast with any entrance into the world? And yet Adam and Eve, in that pristine environment, still betrayed their king. The Lord Jesus, however, never did, despite the environment. That's one of the reasons I have a real hard time with the notion that poverty creates crime. I think if you talk people into it, it might. But if that were the case, the vast majority of poor people would be criminals, and they aren't. That's my crowd. That's what I grew up with. Most of them obey the law. Most of them absolutely despise crime. Might be a little more patient with it than others because perhaps family members are struggling with that and, and uh, incarcerated because of it. But ladies and gentlemen, you can put someone in a pristine and perfect environment and the human heart will find a way to sin and betray God anyway. You put Jesus in the midst of it and you can put him in the worst environment and he will come out pristine and pure everything what a marvelous contrast and that's what jesus does in life all of our ordinary then is accompanied by the extraordinary jesus and so we value the ordinary we value the ordinary we understand that god does most of his work in the ordinary ordinary days with an ordinary routine with ordinary people and to emphasize this i want you to look at this picture of my niece in ohio she posted this of stella her youngest and she's expecting her fourth but this is stella and jade posted on facebook today that she had a long list of things to do that day while her sister was at school and yet she set the list aside to do this. You know something, I don't remember and you probably don't remember all the lists your parents accomplished when you were small. But you remember the time that they gave you, don't you? You remember the words that they spoke to you. 
you remember the physical touch that they gave to you. Well, go ahead and accomplish your list. There's probably some very important things there. We need to be responsible, need to be disciplined. But please don't ever forget moments like this. And that's what we have in the text. Father, thank you for the opportunity to serve you and to honor your name. And thank you, dear God, that you have sanctified the ordinary. I do pray that in this season where, well, Lord, many of us run around like our hair is on fire. And uh, where we take a season like this and can really um, lose focus. I pray that you would help us to drill down deeply into the ordinary. Let us not forget your love and our love for others. Strengthen us every day in this way. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.